welcome to the Security DNA podcast produced by SecurityInfoWatch.com. I'm John Doberstein, Managing Editor of Security InfoWatch and producer of this podcast. The editors here at Security InfoWatch utilize this podcast to provide detailed, actionable information of value to security professionals. This will include industry news, trends and analysis, technology solutions, policy risk analysis, and management. For this episode, I have with me my colleague, Steve Lasky, who is the Editorial Director for the Security Group at Endeavor Business Media. And our guest today is Ed Levy, a highly accomplished senior executive with over three decades of leadership experience in the corporate world and the U.S. government. He's currently leading the critical infrastructure practice at Noble, a diverse global company that drives mission success with world-class products, logistics, services, and training through accelerated procurement. Noble serves as a trusted partner in operational readiness by providing the essential services and strengthening and maintaining a secure, functioning, and resilient U.S. infrastructure. The support Noble provides to the private and government sectors institutes the protective network for the vital assets essential for national and economic security, national public health, and safety. Ed's military, law enforcement, and corporate experience mesh with his role as a facilitator of Noble's government and private sector clients' protection readiness needs. Ed's previous positions include serving as Managing Director and Chief Security Officer for Lone Star Global Acquisitions and Hudson Advisors LP, Vice President of Associate and Workplace Security for MetLife, Global Head of Security for Thomson Reuters, Director of Security for the Empire State Building, Empire State Realty Trust, and Vice President of Global Security and Business Continuity for CIT Group. Ed is a retired Lieutenant Colonel from the U.S. Army and served in various critical military police leadership assignments, including the Pentagon and locations throughout U.S. and Europe. Ed has also written for Security Technology Executive Magazine. And with that, let's turn it all over to Steve. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Ed, welcome back. It's good to talk with you again. Uh, we had a chance to interact at a uh, at GSX early, uh, late last year, and then uh, with one of the writing assignments you did for Security Tech. So I was glad, happy you could uh, join us here on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, Steve. And John, thank you for the introduction. My mother will be very proud of me. <laughs> very good. You know, you've had various experience uh, in the military as a retired lieutenant colonel in the Army, and, uh, various critical military police leadership assignments, including the Pentagon and locations throughout bases in the U.S. and Europe, and along with your various executive level security management roles with major U.S. companies, you've observed firsthand the importance of what uh, an integrated security management uh, setup and framework uh, can mean for an organization's success when it comes to supply chain and logistics and distribution management. Uh, But the challenges of managing security and and mitigating risk for critical infrastructure is a little bit different. Uh, As you said in a recent article that you did for us in Security Tech, uh, asking a cross-sectional group of officials to define critical infrastructure would be like asking the group to close their eyes think of a dog and describe what they saw, we would end up with answers that range from a chihuahua to a Great Dane. So just like solving complex problems, we must recognize the problem, define it, and then proceed with solutions to solve it. 
It's the same with critical infrastructure protection. We need to recognize and define what CI is, the who, the where, the when, the why, and the how. So kind of playing off that, st that statement, Ed, how does that uh, statement kind of jibe with your interpretation and perception of security risk and, uh, and, and, and the protection of critical infrastructure when we're talking about, uh, you know, where we stand today in the threat vectors? I think what it comes down to is that when you think of security, when you think of critical infrastructure protection, um, it's not static. It really is, I hate to use this analogy, it really is a moving target because when, whether you know, any of us sit around with a group of peers and we start talking about you know, what we're doing individually, what our organizations are doing, what our peers are doing, um, you know, everything is, is, is somewhat different. You would think you know, these were the basics you know, when it comes to the protection of assets, protection of facilities, protection of people, um, responding to crises. But it really is a very, very dynamic operating environment in dealing with the multitude of threats that organizations face both domestically as well as internationally as well as what organizations recognize as their top priorities when it comes to security and protective strategies. You know, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, defines critical infrastructure as systems and assets, whether physical or virtual, so vital that the incapacity or destruction of such may have a debilitating impact on the security, economy, public health, or safety, environment, or any combination of those matters across any federal, state, regional, territorial, or local jurisdiction. <clears throat> Excuse me. So from your perspective right now, what are some of the strategic issues that you see security practitioners facing in the CI space? And how do you think those threats have been exacerbated by the growing global, con global conflicts that we have uh, before us right now that have intensified not only physical threats, uh, but cyber threats to the U.S. and the EU? Well, look, you know, number one, the threats aren't anything new. The threats were there before October 7th. The threats will continue to be there after October 7th. And even as we further get away from, you know, more catastrophic or consequential events, you know, like a 9-11, or a major disaster, um, the reality is the threats will remain and the requirements that are associated to protecting our respective organizations um, associated to these threats will always be there. So when it comes down to the big, some of the biggest challenges, as we talked about, is you know, again, as Homeland Security may define what the U.S. critical infrastructure is, is predominantly everything. You know, when you almost when you when you really think about it and start drilling down from the sixteen sectors, as well as the subsectors that are associated with the U.S. critical infrastructure and the National Infrastructure Protection Plan. So it really comes down to is the investment that will be made based 
in the private sector, in the public sector, when it comes to you know, making that investment into whether it's with people, with infrastructure, with technology um, that is going to protect any respective organization from whether it's the high end to the financial services sector or the national industrial base down to the subsectors within the um, commercial sector when we look at houses of worship or schools, things along those lines. And the cyber threat is really expands across the board, um, you know, from both attacks and attack vectors from overseas to, you know, local hacktivists. Um, it can impact any of us anywhere, anytime. Now, you also mentioned in that article that you did with us uh, that uh, the growth in threat vectors and protective needs have created uh, almost two security universes one of physical security and the other of cyber and information security, and that there's still a divide that lies in many organizational constructs with resources, priorities, and talent ratings. Uh, it's also created two separate security groups with independent reporting chains in many organizations. <clears throat> and while this may work in a corporate or commercial environment, uh, it seems like it would have some catastrophic uh, repercussions in the CI sector. From your perspective, what are the unique threats uh, if you have that kind of siloed uh, infrastructure with physical and cyber uh, in, a, in, a, in the CI sector, if this is their organizational structure? Yeah, I think a lot of it, you know, first of all, kind of from a top-down approach, when you look at this, you know, divided effort amongst you know, the physical world, and the virtual world, you know, starts out with legislation and compliance regiments that are so that are more so associated to, you know, res, res, respective, um, you know, components of the critical infrastructure, where it, again, it's very very heavy on the cyber piece when it comes to compliance, when it comes to reporting, when it comes to protective measures. In relationship to the physical side, you know, when it comes to protective requirements, and and it's almost like a add-on footnote to cybersecurity, even to the point where when you look at you know the the cyber threat, not only does it comes from you know outside bad actors, a lot of the cyber threat comes from the insider, and so. It seems as though from that compliance, from even going back from a legislative perspective, from a compliance perspective, then it further resonates into organizations in their risk management practices where you know, security risk assessments are done independently um, with each other. And even somewhat even more fragmented when you look at the human factor, where you got the security guys doing one thing, HR doing something different, the IT guys and, and the cybersecurity groups are doing something even, even different, legal and compliance are doing their own thing. You would like to think it's somewhat of a unified approach or this enterprise security approach, but I think we could all kind of look internally at ourselves and the, and the organizations that we're associated with um, 
it's probably not as perfect as we would like it to be out there. You know, when you look at uh, the different CI sectors, uh, they all have their unique threats and uh, uh, have their different uh, regulatory governance that, that keep them in check. Uh, what are, so, are some of the common bonds that all these, these uh, CI sectors have when it comes to governance and, uh, and, and compliance? Is, is, there a, is there a common thread that uh, you can finger point? And, and along with that, you know, what have been some of the recent uh, improvements to help uh, with the, the governance of uh, some of our most uh, vulnerable uh, critical infrastructure uh, areas? I think the I think the common thread is where I give a lot of credit to DHS and CISA in regarding the products that they publish and the guidelines that they put out to the US critical infrastructure, to our organizations, to our businesses, to nonprofits, to the faith-based sector. Um, is, as I would say, the commonality of the products DHS and CISA is putting out. And as well as how they tried under this unified approach to you know, best protect the homeland. And then it gets, I would say, it's either further cascaded through our law enforcement and intelligence agencies as well in, in regard to you know, the, what's more referred to as the public-private sector partnerships and through, you know, the respective, you know, sector coordinating councils. So I, think, right. so I would say the government works very hard in trying to institute a common and, and unifying framework. And they do, you know, invest in keeping their programs, their training, the opportunities updated. I think really comes down to the t- challenges more so at the local levels, uh, you know, as everyone, as state and local agencies, as, as companies, as organizations, nonprofits, education center, et cetera, really have to struggle with uh, budgets, talent, um, training, time to be able to you know, try to do the right thing. Right, right. You know, it's interesting because we keep hearing terms like convergence as well as GRC, governance, risk and compliance, or TRM, third-party risk management. But it kind of begs the question of how authentically uh, and suitably applied are these uh, frameworks and and, and these uh, uh, rules when you're in the context of a CI CI landscape? Do, Do they work? I would say in theory, they work, and unfortunately, you know, normally after a consequential event is really when you know, people take a real hard look at what's working and not working. But a lot of it comes down to this level of compliance, and not only you know from a compliance perspective, but one of one of the things that I've realized coming into the private sector is, you know. You know, when the auditors come around or assessments are done, how experienced are the auditors? How experienced are the the regulators 
um, at what they're looking at and what they're really identifying as gaps and shortfalls and versus what's kind of, you know, bypassing them. Because, you know, a, 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 lot, a, lot of, a lot of the regulators out there, you know, spend most of their time working in the government, um, not having the, the, the experience of being the practitioners. So it really comes down to is what's missed, what's taken seriously, you know, as, as opposed to, you know, after the fact. I think I think most recently, um, I read a little bit about the report on the Uvalde school shooting, right. and and literally, you know, hundreds of pages of comments associated with it. Well, yeah, six hundred eighty-five pages to be exact. Thank you very much. So the que- <laughs> so the question begs, you know, you know, at the you know at the national level, you know, how is this how how was this addressed? Before the Uvalde shooting, and how is it going to be addressed nationally after this report is published? What's going right. What's going to change? How, how difficult is it to, to to facilitate change? I mean, we we look at this, uh, you know, again, an active shooter event is something that not only affects institutional environments, but it certainly has uh, uh, enveloped. Uh, critical infrastructure facilities uh, in the past as well. So uh, we seem to lack a standardization or a, or a unified approach to this when we're talking about first responders and, and uh, again, that, that public-private partnership that I think is so important in, in, in helping with any type of risk and, and, and security in, in, the, uh, in, in an environment like this. So, I mean, so what do we need to do to make sure that we're all playing from the same playbook? You know, I would probably say it, it's pretty, pretty hard to define what we need to do. I think, you know, first of all, you know, the first thought that popped in my mind was I spent almost 40 years, you know, listening to the common theme was I never thought this will happen to me. I never thought this will happen to my organization. I never thought this would happen here. And so I think what really needs to change is, is somewhat of a, you know, an open-minded approach, really at the leadership level, to really understand that bad things do happen. Bad things happen all the time. And being able to understand what those consequences are, uh, making a decision on you know where that level of risk that's going to be acceptable or unacceptable, and holding oneself accountable um, to whatever risk posture that organization um, wants to take, and doing you know what's right that's going to be you know best best for that organization and the and the people or the business um, or the institution that's associated with it. You know, it's, it definitely is not an exact science. Uh, you know, when we talk about technology now, uh, you know, DHS uh, has certainly been involved with some cutting edge uh, solutions, especially with its science and technology directorate. Uh, and last November, they commemorated the Critical Infrastructure Security and Resilience Month by shining a spotlight on several emerging threats to CI. 
Uh, one was uh, the, the S&T's development and testing of new technologies and tools to, and tools to design, design to combat cyber attacks and their potential of threats. Uh, another was strengthening uh, anti-terrorism initiatives, which uh, DHS says is preventing domestic terrorism uh, and is a cornerstone of their mission. Uh, DHS's S&T physical security program tested two cutting-edge security systems during the uh, 2023 NFL draft that was held in the Union Station, Kansas, uh, Kansas City location uh, back in April. And they wound up deploying ready armor protection for instant deployment barriers and deployment ex and deploying Expedia traffic entry regulators that were uh, put in place to help the NFL and local law enforcement protect the venue uh, and the event attendees from potential attacks because you know, apparently there were credible threats during that uh, during that event uh, and they were also there to protect from improvised. Uh, explosive devices and vehicles. And finally, the DHS and the S&T group worked with uh, critical infrastructure owners and operators to mitigate the effects and recover from electric pulse uh, geomagnetic disturbances. Uh, so that's one way the S&T and DHS is uh, doing their research is trying to harden 4G and 5G communication infrastructure and assessing and evaluating the potential impacts that uh, these EMP or, or GMD events can have on towers and antennas. So as we're looking at, you know, the, a myriad of critical infrastructure facilities and sectors, what's your advice uh, regarding the introduction and application of new technologies? You know, should we uh, be cutting edge or should we be leading edge? I say both. I say it should be cutting edge and leading edge. I mean, first of all, when I when you look at science and technology or research and development, whether it's from the government side or on the side of industry, we have to be 5, 10, 15, 20 years out uh, in, in looking at both you know, technology requirements and the, and the evolution of technology. And then it comes down to the, you know, when and where and how it comes to real-world applications for applying technology. And where, where's that fine balance? I go back to when I was in the military and we would deploy, um, you know, we would make decisions, you know, no introduction of new technology into the war zone. Why? You know, right. because we don't want to be figuring out in the middle of an engagement whether this works or doesn't work. At the same time, industry wants to get hardware and technology you know, into real, real world applications to be able to, A, prove, prove that it works and the value of it, and it's hardened and, and battle tested. So it comes, it comes to that, you know, that fine line of you know, when does new technology, new equipment gets introduced in, into the real world and, um, and and I think it, I think it's 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 a tough choice to make what it comes down to, and I think that goes back into the value of endurance testing and performance testing, um, and then getting it into you know kind of a 
you know, kind of a, a walk-through approach, kind of a walk-crawl-run approach when it comes to the introduction of technology. Because all in all, too many times uh, have we heard, you know, I've walked into organizations where, you know, where technology or equipment is bought and people complain, hey, this doesn't work. And, right. and, and this, technolo- this, this technology sucks. Most of the time, it has nothing to do with the technology. The technology does work. It comes down to the training or the application of the technology, uh, how it's applied, um, uh, as well as some of the shortfalls can exist, in, you know, that it got introduced, too, brought too fast to market. So there's that yeah. balance. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it, and it's only exacerbated when you look at what's going on, too. With some of these converged infrastructures that that need protecting, like uh, you know, IoT and OT convergence is one of the biggest points of anxiety for security professionals and CI organizations right now. You have technology such as uh, you know the industrial Internet of Thing devices and industrial control systems uh, as a service make network segmentation uh, increasingly ineffective. So those you know when you have an ineffective network. And, uh, you know, and you don't have a grasp of, of what your, uh, your infrastructure is all about, that's just begging for intrusion and attack. So how do we address that? I think a lot of it com- comes down to, it goes back to a, a, a unified, this unified approach when it comes to technology management and technology integration. Because, you know, in today, the... Today, we're living in an industrial age. We're living in an age of innovation and where technology is part of everything that we do and comes down to a, a centralized, you know, mani- ma- centralized management controls when it comes to technology. And, and, I think, and I think part of the problem, some of that risk or exposure that we talk about is not only is the the fragmentation of introducing technology to various segments of of what we do, but a lot of it also is I've seen, you know, where people would have to sneak technology in because because you know, you know the, the 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 I the IT guys want to because they do want to control everything, and again, you know, with technology especially. I've seen on security side that doesn't fall within their, you know, layers and their platforms and it's kind of outside of, of, of a network infrastructure, which is one of the other reasons why you have these gaps. So it's kind of like, are you in or you're out? I mean, you've got these three interwoven elements of critical infrastructure, physical, cyber, and the human element. And are they're explicitly identified and need to be integrated through the steps of any framework you're going to put in, as you know, as appropriate uh, as they are. Uh, so I mean, and when you have that that battle uh, between the groups or the divisions, that hurts. But you know, so with that in mind, I guess we can sort of finish out here with uh, any additional best practices or lessons learned that you want to share as. You know, as our, our threats become more sophisticated, our critical infrastructure environments uh, become more complicated and intricate, 
and and the, and the threat levels increase not only domestically but globally. Uh, what are some of the best practices that we can put into place and, and leave the audience with? Yeah, I think I think when it comes down to the best practices, uh, when you when you really kind of look into the present and more so into the future, it really comes down to you know what I would say you know, and I used this term before, you know, from, from an organizational framework, there has to be this unified operating construct. Um, you know, one, 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 of, one of the things I would say when I was, you know, in the, in the private sector was, um, you know, there may be unity of command using the military analogy where we know who's in charge, right. but, is a, right. but is there always that unity of effort? And you know, when and when you look at you know leadership principles, leadership principles relies on unity of command, unity of effort, recognizing the fact that whether you're a security practitioner or a technology practitioner um, or in a legal group, HR, you can't be operating in these you know proverbial silos. Um, which always seems to be, you know, it's been a, the continuous buzzword I've been listening to for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And it's kind of breaking, breaking that paradigm and, you know, working for and with, you know, the appropriate, you know, leadership and working, you know, across all, you know, you know lines of you know, specialties, you know, functional experts. And being able to predominantly row in the, row in the same direction, uh, and I think that's really what yeah. it comes down to, as opposed yeah, to. I, I, mean, I was going to say, as opposed to you know the security guy, you know, be, being accused as you know you know Chicken Little and the sky's falling, and and right, talking right. about you know threats um, that some people may say never going to happen, yeah. Yeah, look at look it's at the. Only gotta happen one, it's only got to happen once, though. Yeah, I mean, look at the pandemic. Um, you know, you know, watch it, watching the pandemic happen. All the naysayers saying, "Hey, this, this is a Chinese problem, and it's never going to happen. It's never going to expand in the region. Never going to expand to the rest of the world." And we all know what happened there. Yeah, that's an example of both uh, uh, a crisis turning into reality, but also uh, a crisis turning into a misinformation cavalcade of, of, uh, of untruths and, 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 and political, you know, uh, uh, jargon that uh, confused everybody because, you know, even though we were... And think of all the decisions that were made over right. that, both externally and internally to to every one of our own organizations. Again, I, and I think, you know, that's, that has got to be when we're dealing with crisis, when we're dealing with uh, threats uh, in any organization, whether it be critical infrastructure or commercial or, or corporate, uh, you know, we, we've, we've got to be cognizant of, you know, are we listening to the truth tellers? Are we getting real information? Are we getting real time uh, you know, threat vectors that we can assess and respond to because there is so much misinformation out there. Uh, I mean, there was a report today uh, at the New Hampshire uh, 
primary where uh, there was uh, a IA bot uh, putting out uh, a Joe Biden uh, sound-alike voice telling voters not to go out and, uh, and vote today in the, or tomorrow in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, that was a source of misinformation that could have catastrophic effects, you know, on any election, either in this country or, or worldwide. And, and those are those are real threats. Now we're looking at threats that go beyond just the physical terrorist threats or the man man-made or uh, uh, or, or the uh, the weather threats. We're we're getting threats that, you know, ten years ago we couldn't we didn't even think were possible. So. Uh, we've really got to exp- expand our, our minds to what uh, we need to be aware of. <laughs> I, would, I would think you would agree. I agree 100%. It, and I find it, I always use the term, you know, the authoritative source. What is the source of this information? Right. What is the, the source of this threat data? And, you know, how authentic mm-hmm. is it? And is the source authoritative? And then other times also, as you learn, you know, to, to confirm that source. One thing going, even reflecting back on what you asked about, you know, when we're talking about DHS and, 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 and threat information, I think the government does a very good job in outlining what the threats are to organizations. Um, mm-hmm. A lot more fulsome than um, you might expect. And, and I, the way I look at it is that organizations can't s- stand up and say, I didn't know anything about it because it's all out there in black and white. It's Most of it is open source information. Um, right. You know, I, I look at the, um, the ChemBio threat. And again, you know, how often has there been, you know, ChemBio threats, both whether it's, you know, within the U.S., or outside of the U.S., but you read all the data coming from the U.S. government, it's, it's active and it's persistent, um, and it's something that should not be ignored. And this is, you know, organization be protecting themselves against this. Ed, I tell you, I, I really appreciate your time. This has been a very enlightening uh, conversation, uh, talking about you know, uh, your experience both in the private sector and the public sector and how all of this sort of meshes in with threats to the critical infrastructure. Uh, we'll, we'd like to get you back down the road here, but again, uh, appreciate your expertise and uh, look forward to uh, uh, working with you in the future. Thanks, Steve. Steve, I want to thank you and Ed for this fantastic discussion about the exciting and rapidly evolving future of the security industry and its relationship with the critical infrastructure sector. Just a reminder to our audience, this podcast is for you so you can stay informed about trends in the security industry anytime, anywhere. To access our podcast lineup, go to podbean.com and search for Security DNA. You can also find our podcasts in our Security Frontline, Integrator Newswire, and Security Week e-newsletters. Of course, you'd love to have some feedback from you, our listeners, about topics that you're interested in. If you have a suggestion, send an email to slasky, S-L-A-S-K-Y, at securityinfowatch.com. 
Yet this episode of the Security DNA Podcast was recorded and produced by John Doberstein, Managing Editor of Security InfoWatch. For Steve Lasky, Ed Levy, and everyone here at Security InfoWatch, thanks for listening and stay safe out there wherever you may be.